The scripture reading before Matt's lesson this morning will be taken from the book of Luke, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Luke 3, 21 through 22, and chapter 4, verse 1 through 15. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, heaven was open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. Chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. At the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. He said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give to it anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will fit you, or I'm sorry, they will lift you in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put your Lord to the test. When the devil had finished all of his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Good morning. It's interesting to me how when you come back to certain scriptures at different seasons of your life, you see different layers and this is one of those passages where there's such depth in it. You know, when, when I began to read the Bible, I remember just seeing the commands, the do's and don'ts. And, and I was eager to make application. What does God want me to do? I, I want to know right now. And, you, and, you, and you're looking at it like a law, like, like rules, and you're just trying to figure out what's good and bad. And, and then you, you go and you, you put together some things the next time through. You start connecting passages. And you go, okay, well, maybe this is why God did this. And, and, and I see the nature of God a little more now. you know. And then you might come back another time later to that same passage, and you begin to see philosophies. You begin to see what God's doing in a bigger picture. Uh, and in this case, what Satan's really trying to do when he tempts Jesus it's a lot deeper than I've ever imagined. And I want to try to share some of that with you today in a way that we can understand it. But this, these two events of Jesus' baptism and His temptation are really they're, they're meant to be back-to-back -back in the records as one continual event uh, congruent with one another and relating to one another. In fact, these two events together which happen immediately one after the other, set forth to us the great paradox of life. The great paradox of life. You see, in the, in the baptism of Jesus, there's a scene near water. 
I don't know about you, I picture a refreshing scene in the river. There's a heavenly, a heavenly voice that booms from above. And it makes one succinct, affirming statement of truth. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and fills Him with power. And this voice from the Father said, This is My beloved Son. A phrase that was taken out of Psalm 2. That He would be His Son. And in whom I am well pleased comes out of Isaiah 42, verse 1. Talking about the, the, the pleasing nature of the messianic mission to God. In Isaiah 53, we see it again, that it pleased God to bruise him. And so he says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well, in you I'm well pleased, affirming to Jesus that I love you, I recognize you, I am with you, and don't forget it. Because immediately, the Spirit turns and takes Him into the wilderness. Not a scene of refreshing water, but into a desert. And there's not a voice from heaven, but a voice from hell. And it doesn't speak with one affirming statement of truth, concise. This voice began to speak and will continually speak. Words of doubt and dismissal throughout Christ's life, just like He does in ours. It's continual. And the Spirit that filled Jesus and came down upon Him in the form of a dove, how beautiful, is now going to lead Him straight into battle to confront the enemy and to get this show on. <laughs> And to make a statement about what's going to happen or not. R.C. Foster, in his volume, The Life of Christ, wrote this. And I liked how he said it so well, I wanted to just read it to you. He said, It is well to remember that the Holy Spirit did not tempt Jesus. The devil did that. So while it's true that James said, James 1 12 through 15, that he himself tempts no one, yet he permits us to be tempted by Satan. In this case, Foster says, the Spirit took him by the forelocks and began the battle by selecting the time and place where it should be fought. It was inevitable that the devil would assail Jesus immediately after his baptism, as he was beginning his campaign to overthrow Satan's kingdom. The early days of His public ministry would have been a terrific battleground, but the choice of the Spirit was that Jesus would face the devil in His own lair. Jesus did not seek to be tempted, but He was led by the Spirit. The decisive struggle is fought to a victorious conclusion before the public ministry even begins. These problems are now clearly and finally settled. He does not waver or change his program, but goes forth to execute it. The baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus together illustrate some things very clearly to us. First of all, this. 
we must know that temptation and its subsequent suffering, and it is suffering. The Hebrew letter said Jesus suffered being tempted. But there is also a suffering that takes place outside of temptation. We need to know that these things are by design, first of all. They're by design. Sometimes we wrongly assume that our sufferings are not by design. We might assume that when things are going well, it's because God is so good and I am so good. He's blessing me because I'm good and He's pleased with me. But what happens when life's temperature takes a dip? What happens when, uh, based upon my own goodness, I'm suffering, I'm being tempted, and I'm weakened or I fail? What does that mean? Well, that must mean I'm bad. That must mean somebody messed things up. You or you did this to me. It, it might mean that maybe God's not there after all. And our suffering is compounded by not understanding that God has placed these things in our lives. Yes, even sometimes leads us to battle with Satan for a good outcome, for a purpose and a reason. We have to understand this. We have a tendency to believe that things should go well for us every day. When I wake up, I hope things do go good for me, but if I say, well, they should go good for me, I mean, that's the way God wants me to be, happy, blessed, and nothing's ever wrong. If something's wrong, then it must be somebody's fault. See, we think if things should go well for us, that there's always a, a person to blame if they don't. And God says, no, that's not true. God is not suspect uh, your loved ones near you or even your enemies are not to be held suspect every time things aren't going well for you. What did Job's wife and friends think of his suffering? You remember what his wife thought? She thought there was something wrong with their religion. She said, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. She thought there was something wrong with their system of faith. And what did he say? He said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from the hand of God and not adversity? And his friends, his friends said, remember now, chapter 4, verse 7 of that book, remember now, whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Job to which Job replied, Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? So I have been allotted months of futility. And the Bible says twice in that book that in all these things he did not sin with his lips. In other words, he was right. His understanding of life was that good comes to us and evils befall us in this life. And the intensity of his suffering shook him to the core. Oh, he complained. He demanded his time in court with God so that he could set forth his case and say, 
I really don't feel like I deserve this much, but he never left his well-reasoned conclusion that it is by design that bad things can happen to good people too. And there must be suffering. Life is a fight, no matter how you live, good or bad, rich or poor, you cannot escape suffering and temptation. Young or old starts from our youth. It continues into the quote-unquote golden years. We cannot escape it. We will have to face it. And we're supposed to confront it by enlisting with Christ, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. We're supposed to confront it by enduring hardships as a good soldier, Hebrews 10, 35-39, and not falling back into destruction. And we're supposed to overcome it, like in those letters to those churches in Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, to Him who, what is it? Overcomes every church, even the ones that got an A-plus on their scorecard. You have to overcome temptation and hardship and suffering. When you do, there's something waiting for you. But here is one, Jesus, who is absolutely at peace with God and full of God's Spirit. He's sinless. He's sinless. And He was led straight into the heart of danger. Jesus was exposed to a prolonged hardship in, in this fasting in the wilderness. More than we could know. I don't know of anybody that's fasted for 40 days at least. And grueling temptations. And it proves what Paul reaffirmed to the church in the book of Acts, chapter 14, and I'll reaffirm to you now that through many sufferings we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Through them. That's the idea of, of, of perseverance, to see through the severities, to peer through the severities, to persevere. He says that is how we'll enter the kingdom. It's a fact. It's a fact that those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We have to go in that way. That's why the gate's narrow. Some of you today may be here inquiring, investigating Christian faith. Am I being a good salesman to you? Am I selling you? Let's go, bring it on. I want to I get into the kingdom. But anybody that would tell you otherwise is selling you a cheap gospel. Because the Lord's very clear that there's a purpose to this. There's a purpose to it. You also ought to know that through the temptation of Christ, we learn secondly the reality of a supernatural presence of evil. Just as surely as there's a supernatural presence of God that we would acknowledge. And it has intelligence. The evil presence that is near to us has intelligence. Just as the Creator God of all things has intelligence. 
to deny this is to not to deny the Bible. And in our sophisticated and science-centered culture, unbelieving men and women have written off the devil and they've mocked at the idea or the biblical record of evil spirits or demon possession. They say Jesus was only a product of His superstitious culture and times. And those who believe the Bible are ignorant. But does Jesus' authority to speak these things derive from His historical vantage point there in His little part of the world in the first century in His ignorance of the times or of reality? Is that where, is that where His authority to speak these things come from? Or does it stem from His identity? If Jesus is God, there is a very real presence of evil that can influence you. It can touch you. It can touch you. Otherwise, Jesus is a liar. Or He's sadly mistaken, and therefore so are we by being here today. But if you don't believe that, if you believe as I do, when, when we look at each other and I look at, at nature and I look at the creation, I look at the nature of man and the heart of man and I see the tremendous potential to love and to do good, I believe in God. I believe that there is an intelligent designer, a purposeful creator behind this, and therefore, there is also an intelligence behind the evil in the world. And a purpose for it. You see, we just can't separate one from the other. It's not open for debate. You believe that God has influence in your life for good? Believe that there is an influence behind the evil too, and Satan and his devils. The Bible says you're foolish if you don't believe it. It just confronts that philosophy of today that says you're ignorant and foolish if you believe this stuff with. You're ignorant and you're foolish if you don't believe it. Just that confident, the Lord says, this is the way it is. This is the truth. And so, we must make our mind up. A professor at Columbia University, Andrew Dobanko, secular liberal who wrote The Death of Satan, said on a radio talk show that we have a huge problem in our society if we believe that Satan is the whole problem of evil and that somehow we, we are not part of it. He said, just so we have a huge problem in our society if we don't believe Satan has any part of the evil that we say. And then it's all derived from human nature. C.S. Lewis said that there's two equal and opposite mistakes you can make when it comes to devils. He said, you can have an unhealthy over-interest in them and allow the fear of them to overcome you as if there's nothing there to protect you from this spiritual realm of influence. Or he said, you can have an unhealthy under-interest in them and not believe in them at all. I agree. If Jesus is the Christ, then there's also a devil. An adversary, that's what that word means, devil, adversary. There is a Satan, and that word means an accuser. One accusing, accusing you of sin before God. And he's called the devil and Satan. He was the one in the garden from beforehand. And in such a garden-esque form, 
He came to Jesus and began to contradict every single thing that God said to him at his baptism, just like he came to Eve in the garden and said, did God really say? He did not mean this. He didn't say this. You misunderstood him. His motive was wrong. Just like that, he comes to Jesus and he begins to work on him. The intelligence behind the temptation was trying to persuade, get this, with Scripture. With Scripture. Well, the Bible says, God said. And the intelligence behind the response was a well-reasoned rebuttal with Scripture. Jesus met this intelligence with a higher intelligence. The Word of God, the promises of God. And He met this purpose of Satan's with a higher purpose, the mission of God. And so finally, there's a third thing here I want to propose to you that we need to understand about this. First of all, not only that it's by design that there is temptation and suffering in the world and that we fall into it, but, and, and then that there is an intelligence behind the evil, but thirdly, that there are two supernatural kingdoms, therefore, that are in fierce competition for your soul. Two completely different ways of viewing the world, of structuring the world, of structuring human relationships with the divine and with each other. Two opposing views. Satan's kingdom is based on this principle. You pour your life out for me. Jesus' kingdom is, I'll pour my life out for you. That's different, isn't it? The vision of Satan for the world and the vision of Jesus for the world are starkly opposed. And we need to remember that every decision we make, every moral decision that we make is like drawing a line and you're going to go one side of it or the other. And in doing so, when you make that decision, you're making a decision actually which will make you more like the master of that kingdom. You'll become more like the king of that kingdom. You see, we have to know where the battlefront is. When we do, rather than fighting to avoid suffering, or fighting against and blaming each other, or fighting against God, we must fight against the spiritual forces of Satan and his call for you to join his kingdom. The story is told of the first woman cabinet member the United States under Franklin Delano Roosevelt, as she wrote her memoir, that Roosevelt, in an informal dinner, was uh, acquainted by a young minister named Howard Johnson. I'm sorry, I forgot the woman's name. That's terrible. I might get it here even by the time I'm done telling the story, but Howard A. Johnson was a young minister who sat with the president and he asked him if he'd ever read Soren Kierkegaard's writings. The president said no. And he gave him a list of some writings to read. And this is in early 1944. By this time, the Jewish nation, amongst others, who had been pleading with the West to please get involved in this war, the, the terrors are horrendous. The things that are happening to us you wouldn't believe, and, they, and we, we and others didn't. But we had become convinced now 
and, and Roosevelt was struggling to understand how a people so well educated as the Nazis and the Germans at the time, so refined in the arts, so industrious in nature, could be guided by such an evil as to do such things to a people like this. And it was Kierkegaard who set for Roosevelt, according to his own claim, a clear understanding of the spiritual forces behind the influence of man to do what man can do, is capable of doing. He gave him the biblical roots and the supernatural understanding behind what influences men to do evil, just like what influences us to do good. And Roosevelt began then to recommend Kierkegaard to his cabinet. But it motivated him to fight the battle in a little different way. He understood that he was up against a greater foe, it is said. Isn't that fascinating? How these teachings can influence some of our nation's history, some of world history. In the temptations, Satan is challenging Jesus' vision and purpose for coming. He started with the medial and he graduated to the greater temptation. The greatest temptation for Jesus, I do not believe, would have been the appeal to eat. He fasted for 40 days. I think he could have fasted for 41, and he did. It wasn't the appeal to the base desires that he would succumb to, although it says he was hungry for a purpose. And that was to understand that he really wanted to eat something, and he could have eaten something. But I don't even think it was in the temptation to jump off the roof of the, ten the temple, the pinnacle of the temple, to show off how the angels of God could come down and bear him up before he hits the ground, lest he dash his foot against a stone. Jesus was well aware of who he was, we know, by the time he was age 12. Know ye not that I must be about my father's business, mother, father? And just some days, at least 40, before this, did he not hear the voice from heaven say, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. I don't think it was that Jesus was struggling with his identity out there. Oh, woe is me. God's left me. I'm going to die out here in the wilderness. I'm just a human. I, I don't think so. You know where I think the greatest temptation was? Was in what Jesus really didn't want to do. He didn't want to. He asked that the cup pass from him three times. As he bowed in the garden, sweating, it says, as of great drops of blood. Satan's offer was continually, you don't need to go to the cross. I'll give you the kingdoms of the world right now. You bow before me and we'll just 
we'll just circumvent this whole thing. Gods don't act like this, humbling themselves to their, to their subjects or their creation, and kings don't humble themselves before their subjects to serve. Gods don't do this. That's the way Satan looks at things. I wouldn't do it, is what he's saying there. You don't need to do this. We can share this thing together. Just bow down and worship me. Now that had some appeal to the one who knew he came to suffer and die. And the divine response? Away with you. Away with you. He wasn't moved. He was strengthened. And I propose to you that he was strengthened by faith in the affirmation of God that he was loved and that he had a purpose for being there. And those are the same things by which you and I can overcome all things. Every time Jesus was met with a trial or a temptation, he faced it with the Word of God. God had affirmed this. He understood it. He believed it. And He acted in accordance with that. And He was able to overcome all things. The Apostle Paul picked up on that as he went through sufferings. He prayed once about the physical suffering he was going through, even three times. And the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for you. And he understood. He understood then that there was a greater purpose for his suffering. And he wrote to the Philippians and he said, you know, I've learned how to abound with blessing and I've learned how to be abased and have nothing. Yes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this temptation account following this beautiful scene at the baptism is meant not only to strengthen Christ, but to strengthen you and I. And that's why the the writers of the Gospels included it in here some in greater detail than others, that we would understand that this is what biblical faith is. It's not quoting Scripture. It's not throwing Scripture back and forth there. I got you with this one or that one. It's not writing letters to people back and forth and arguing. It's saying, God said this. I believe it. And I stand as a child of God affirmed that I am pleasing to Him. When was the last time you said that to yourself confidently? I'm a child of... I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of the King. I'm pleasing to God. And I don't have to prove it. He just said it. The Apostle wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Come out from among them and be separate from them. You shall be my sons and my daughters, and I shall be your God. And that calls to us. And I wonder how long it's been since we've believed that. By nature, we are pleasing to God when we submit to Him as our King. I wonder how many sufferings have been aggravated compounded how many fingers we've pointed at others blaming for our suffering that could have been avoided by simply going to God in prayer and having faith that God will work all things through us 
for His good. Church, let's have more faith. Let's have more faith that God loves you and you're affirmed in His love. Let's have more faith that when He speaks something and we believe it, that we will be blessed by it sooner or later, but surely so. Won't you turn yourself over to Him as a child today and be baptized into Christ and put on His coat of righteousness, which is our affirmation, and receive the Holy Spirit, which is our guarantee as He works in our heart and develops our minds toward God and we become more like His Son? Won't you receive that today for yourself? I call you to repent. I call you to, to by faith, Put Him on today as your Lord and Savior. Let's stand and sing.